Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. In today's episode, I am talking with Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe, author of Calm Within the Storm, A Pathway to Everyday Resiliency. An inspiring new voice in resiliency, Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe believes that our modern conception of resiliency as fighting or being tougher is misguided. Learning happens when we're able to trust and to feel safe. Fear and shame are barriers, not facilitators, for authentic growth, acceptance, and change. In Calm Within the Storm, Dr. Robin maps out a kinder approach to taking on the challenges of life and developing authentic self-alignment and balance. By focusing on research-informed, sustainable, and achievable personal development practices, Dr. Robin presents a new, attainable model for everyday resiliency, one that everyone can use to feel more grounded and capable. She identifies the obstacles that derail us and keep us stuck and shows us how to enact our resiliency through stories, research, and practical strategies. The book is a tender, powerful, and achievable path to the everyday resiliency we all need to navigate the uncertainty in our lives. Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe is described as one of the most sought after, engaging, thought-provoking, and truly transformative international speakers and scholars in her field. She is a multi-award-winning education and psychology instructor, author, resiliency expert, and philanthropist. What sets Dr. Robin apart is how she learned resiliency from the ground up as a person who has experienced significant obstacles and forged her own comeback. With over 16 years of university teaching and research experience, she brings a refreshing and informed perspective to our understanding and practices of resiliency. Dr. Robin's work is accessible and relatable while offering practical strategies that are realistic and sustainable. For more information on Dr. Robin, please visit her website at robinhd.ca. And that's Robin, spelled R-O-B-Y-N-E. So it's robinhd.ca. Hello, everybody. This is Elizabeth Cronin, a host of the New Books Network. Today... I am fortunate to be talking with Dr. Robin Hanley Defoe, author of Calm Within the Storm. Thanks for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Elizabeth. So as I was telling you um, earlier, we'd like to start by just asking you to share a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. 
Of course. So I am, so I'm from Canada. So I'm from a community that's tucked between Toronto and Ottawa. So I'm originally from Ontario and I have been studying psychology and education for uh, the last, I've been working in the university setting for the last 15 years, studying and doing action research, uh, lots of teaching, all things about different dimensions of psychology and educational topics. And as I was doing that work and that academic setting, I started to actually do a lot of research almost off the side of my desk in terms of passion projects, in terms of ideas that I was really curious about and things that didn't always necessarily fall into the traditional research area, but things that I really was curious about. And after a wee while, a lot of that information and knowledge sharing started to grow and grow and grow. And I had the opportunity to then start working with people with that content. So I was able to start talking to people specifically around resiliency and wellness, uh, leadership. All these ideas were those topics that I was curious about. I started to be able to bring that out into the world. And what happened very organically was eventually all of this content needed to find a place to land. And I was approached to put that content material together into a book. And I was very excited because I was able to work with this an unbelievable publishing house in Vancouver and British Columbia, these two amazing women who run this little boutique publishing house where they provided me this opportunity, Elizabeth, to write about the scholarship, but also to braid in personal story and application and narrative. So it was this amazing opportunity to then be able to share my work with my worlds almost colliding together, which was what I was hoping to be able to do. It's, it's absolutely effective. I mean, as reading the book, the combination of both, as you said, the scholarly um, knowledge that you have and the way you weave it into not just stories, but personal experience too. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I would love to. And, and I'll be in full disclosure, uh, not, not a lot of scholars take that approach. Right. Uh, you know, I think our training and our, you know, the way we're conditioned in our professions is that we're meant to have our professional self, which maintains these very, very rigid boundaries about personal disclosure. And then we have this life on the other side, and we're not really meant to bridge those in very often. And what was very interesting, the where, um, and, you know, did some folks did actually say to me as a professional, as a scholar, you might not want to go down that road. People, you could lose credibility if you talk openly about your own learning challenges, your own mental health issues, your own setbacks, you know, that would almost preclude you from being included in this academy setting. However, what was very interesting years ago, I was working with some of my colleagues at the university who happened to be indigenous scholars and our indigenous scholars often talk about this idea that our stories, personal stories carry wisdom. And that if we want to be able to really understand things, we have to honor and understand who we are in the process of the knowledge that we're seeking. So I really give appreciation and thanks to my Indigenous colleagues who said, no, there is a place, Robin, for you to bring in personal story. And that is the oldest form of pedagogy, you know, telling people stories, helping them relate and connect and to see themselves within the research. So that was a, a new adventure for me to take on that practice. Now, I often bring this invitation to persons who are curious about exploring, bringing yourself into your research. I encourage people to make sure we only talk about things in a public forum that we have brought full circle, that we have healed from, or we have found some type of resolution with because as soon as you put it out there, it's open for discussion. And if those are things that aren't resolved yet for you, that could become a bit more challenging. So I only talk about things in, in the book or in my public speaking that I can say that I've, I've addressed, I've done the work on those things and the things that um, I'm still working on, those aren't in the book, Elizabeth, uh, because I'm still doing the work in other areas. Oh, that's a very nice caveat because, yes, if you have an open wound, you don't want people throwing salt at yeah. your open wound. But if you've healed, it doesn't matter. It, you don't feel as sensitive to, to it. Um, I think it's very powerful because I 
because I it adds another whole um, element of um, making you feel like an authority, the opposite of sort of, you know, undermining your expertise. It's like, yes, you know this academically, but you also know this personally. And so I, I think, you know, you, you get to it very early in the book. So I don't feel like we're giving anything no. away. <laughs> we don't need to do a spoiler alert, but oh. if you could even just share the story of your car accident, um, I think that just gives somebody insight into, um, yeah, into your understanding of what it means to kind of really push yourself through something. Yes, of course. And um, so I write quickly in the book, I start there by talking about my positionality, like who, where, who am I to be talking about this? Where am I positioned in this conversation about resiliency? And what was very important to me communicating this positionality was to very much acknowledge that I am a person who has had major life experiences that have contributed to my understanding. And I think often we kind of stand behind our credentials or our training or our academic standing to be able to say, this is who I am and how I have this opportunity to talk about it. For me, I very much wanted to take a different approach. So I do share early that as someone who experienced major mental health challenges as early as early as grade two, I remember feeling othered very young. Now I grew up in an exceptionally supportive family. I had a very conscientious and aware mother and a father. I grew up in this really solid grounded household, yet something was different about how I saw the world. And more importantly, how I saw myself in that world. So as early as grade two, I remember feeling some of these pulls and these, the sense of unease. Uh, I didn't obviously have the vocabulary at eight to talk about it, but there was something there. And that's also when I started to experience a lot of struggles with school. And as somebody who had, um, for me, I had undiagnosed learning challenges and ADHD. It was something that it was just, you know, I was kind of swept away into some special needs classes, but without any really solid in program or intervention. So I just stumbled my way through and I had a very fractured relationship with school. And by grade 10, I kind of white knuckled my way to that point, Elizabeth, but by grade 10, I finally, I finally surrendered and said, I can't do this. And I dropped out of high school. At that point as well, I was managing major, the mental health had kicked in and I was having a lot of issues with anxiety and a lot of self-harm. And, you know, my parents were trying so hard, but helplessly to help me get through it. They were, you know, doing everything that they thought that they could, yet I still was coming up with these barriers. I was also navigating some pretty aggressive addictions. So the, one of the last interventions I think my parents tried was we actually moved to a different community. It was almost like a fresh start. Maybe if we can simplify, slow things down, get out of the big city, that might give Robin time to recover and heal. And when we moved into that new community, we were very isolated. And one of the first things we did was actually get, a, I got my driver's license. There was like no transit. So I had to have this driver's license and very early and having my driver's license where I could drive alone, um, I experienced a, a pretty significant car accident. And what had happened in that incident was a snowstorm had rolled in quite quickly and I lost control of the car and it went down an embankment and my vehicle ended up crashing through the ice and my vehicle sank into the Otonabee River. So within moments I was trapped in a sinking car alone in a blizzard on this deserted road. And in that moment, I realized that I wasn't, I wasn't actually feeling scared. I, I wasn't feeling, I wasn't feeling afraid. The first big emotion I could label was the fact that I was actually Elizabeth feeling angry. I was so angry that I was in this situation and I couldn't protect my mom. I couldn't protect my family from what this outcome was likely leading to. And in that moment, when I started to think about my mom, uh, my mom had always shared with me since I was little that she had this steadfast confidence in me, Elizabeth, that I could do hard things. She had, again, this, this confidence that no matter what, Robin can figure things out. She thinks on her feet. She gets herself out of tricky situations. Robin does hard things. 
And in that moment of taking in what was going on, I felt that kind of that reminder, kind of like that echo, that emotional echo. And I made the decision to, to fight and I was able to get myself out of the car and I was able to get myself to an ice shield in the middle of that river. And that night there just happened to be a gentleman by the name of Joseph. Now, Joseph was just a random guy in his thirties driving home from shift work, Elizabeth. And he somehow saw my, my car tracks in the snow. He somehow decided to drive all along the side of that abandoned road to see if he could see anyone. And Joseph pulled his truck over in that blizzard. And somehow he did see me out there and he grabbed some wood and a chain from his pickup truck. And Joseph crawled out on that ice that was breaking all around him. He crawled out on there. He slid out the chain. He wrapped it around me and we were able to, he was able to pull and he was able to get me to shore. Now, Joseph Todd was actually awarded the Governor General's Award for Bravery in Canada for risking his life to save a stranger, which is the highest honor we give for bravery to civilians in Canada. And what was extraordinary about that event was it wasn't as if I had this car accident, Elizabeth, and then everything fell into place afterwards, but it was the turning point. It was that origin story where all of a sudden I realized I got to find a different way. What's what I've been doing up to this point, it isn't working. And I was finally ready to get the help and the support and embrace my current reality that I needed a lot of help. Yeah, there's so, there's so much to talk about in that story. Um, When I was listening to you tell me now, I've read it in the book. When I read in the book, I just got shivers. But listening to you talk about it, what occurred to me was that you were obviously just sensitive, even as a young child. And so here you are. You know, you're not even thinking about your own life, you know, as you're thinking, like, at one point you talk about, I just hope this goes quickly, like, you know, okay, just, just sort of like giving into it. But then you think, no, 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 I can't give in. I've got to, I can't do that to my parents. I don't want them to live the rest of their life. So that's so interesting to me that, um, you know, and I, I talked to someone who wrote a book about empaths, you know, that there are some people that are just born super sensitive and it's hard to find our way because we don't understand that that much. So that's one thought that I just wanted to kind of point out. You can talk more about that if you want. But the other thing that just occurred to me now is that that Joseph, it seems to me he, he probably practices a little bit about what this book is about, like everyday resiliency, because that's really what this, the book is about, is you're, you, know, you saying we really need to look at how we understand resiliency and how it shouldn't be this big dramatic thing. It's an everyday thing and practicing it on a regular basis empowers us in moments like that. So it just, I just, that's just, just came to my mind. It's like, wow, because he had to feel like he could do that. You know, he had to feel like he could take that risk, that he was able to do that. So I just, just wanted to see if he wanted to say anything about that. Yeah, those are two very thoughtful and insightful reflections, Elizabeth. And to address the first one first about being an empath, and it's interesting because so much of this language is new. You know, when I was growing up, you know, we would never talk about empath. We weren't even talking about young girls with ADHD. You know, we weren't talking about the things that we talk about as we do now. And I do recall very much from, again, very early age, just feeling you know, almost that, that sense of other, or what I talk about in my work as this almost like an unbelonging to, to the rest of people, because everyone else seemed to be able to just like, you know, uh, you know, maybe they would watch a sad movie and they'd be like, Oh, that was sad. And they would move on. Yet I would still be like in the grips of the fact that like, I can't let that go. You know, and it's even interesting because I've even seen it on my own children. Like there's certain movies that, uh, cause our, our, our children are very empathetic as well. And, you know, there's certain movies that we just can't watch in our house. We can't watch movies about pets, like in our house. we just cannot watch movies where anything involves pets because I know two days, three days from now, our daughter will still be reeling from that. Meanwhile, 
all the other children have moved on long ago. So there is this idea that sometimes we embody some of those big emotions. And when we're little, we don't have the language to be able to talk about it. And it's not only that I realized that I cared so deeply about felt like everything, I was also carrying it everywhere I went. I didn't know how to release it. I didn't know where to put it. And as an adult, I'm still learning that at 42, I'm still learning about the fact that I'm going to feel deeply and I'm going to care wholeheartedly. I'm now learning that I have to find releases. I have to find ways to put it down because otherwise it just becomes really heavy and it impacts other life areas. So anyone listening who can relate to that, because I know I certainly relate to that feeling at a very young age, like, you know, I couldn't sleep You know, everybody went to sleep and I was thinking, well, what about that homeless person? And, and, you know, and fortunately I had, my parents were patient too. And they would say to me, oh, there are shelters. And, you know, they'd have to tell me like, cause I'd be like, where are they going to sleep? You know, I'd get caught up in all the details. Um, so anyone listening will, your book is a good read for them because you do get into like the pillars of resiliency and you talk about pathways. And if I found it very soothing for people that do, you know, have feel deeply and things kind of weigh on that. I just want to kind of put that. I appreciate that. I appreciate that feedback. And, you know, that was very much the intention of the tone and the, the intention that I put into that book. And as somebody who has seen it from both sides. So as a scholar, I've studied depression, I've studied anxiety, I've studied attachment, you know, I've done, I've done that. I've studied learning. I get that from an intellectual perspective, but I've also felt those things. I've, I've, I've lived those things. I know what depression feels like. I know what anxiety feels like. I know what it feels like to be preoccupied with my attachment. Like I, I know intellectually what it is, but I also know what it feels like. So for me in this body of work, I very much wanted to find this alignment between our head and our heart. So yes, intellectually, this is the stats. This is the stuff that we know to be true. This is our current understanding. And from somebody who's trying to do the work alongside, these are some of the positive experiences that I've had and people I've worked with have been able to have implementing some of those theories into practice. And, you know, often, for example, you know, we hear people say, you know, you know, okay, well, this is, you know, these are the symptoms of depression and we see these lists, but if we actually paused to think about what does that feel like in your body? Like, what does that feel like as a mother looking at your children and just wanting to feel differently, like just wanting to feel that energy so you can play or you can keep up with them or you can engage, but you, you just feel empty, depleted on the inside. So when I was putting ideas and invitations into the writing of this book, I wanted them to be, I wanted them to be kind. I wanted them to be gentle because I personally had, you know, I tried to hate myself healthy. You know, I tried to get angrier, stronger, tougher, because that's what I thought resiliency meant. And what I realized it wasn't until I surrendered that expectation that I'm not supposed to care. You know, we do care. You know, it's, I surrendered that expectation that I'm supposed to, you know, be able to talk myself out of a bad mood. It's like, you can't talk yourself out of a bad mood. You have to feel your way through it. So that very much was the, the, what I wanted to be able to offer in that body of work is an alternative way of thinking about how do we handle the, the tricky parts and the hard parts of our lives. And one of the things that came out of it, at least the way you organized in the book, that there are those pillars for mm-hmm. resiliency. And it's interesting because when you talk about your own experience being younger, a sense of being other, almost like you said, unbelonging. unbelonging. Because one of the one of the things, so to the extent that anybody is struggling with feeling like they don't belong or they're they're other or left out that interferes with the resiliency, right? Like that's one of the key pillars. So maybe you want to talk a little bit about that because I do think belonging is not something that we've talked about, that the importance of belonging, um, I feel like that's a new topic. 
Yeah. And I think there's very much this conversation about resiliency, about this kind of almost like this lone wolf, right? Like you, you have to go about it. You get harder, you get more focused and you just white knuckle or push your way through it. Tough. Tough, exactly. And that kind of grittier, that hardy way of just pushing through or, you know, pulling yourself up, right? Like not letting yourself sit there in that, you know, mess or uncertainty. We're just supposed to do it better. And working with persons, and again, I've had the honor of working with people all around the world. You see that at the surface, right? You see us that we can be stoic, we can get through difficult times, we can stay calm in challenging situations. But I was so curious about what's underneath that? Like what is underneath that stoicism or that grit or that toughness? Like where, where does that actually even come from? And when I started talking to persons, I would hear stories about that idea of belonging, that they, they felt as though that they were part of a home team, that they had people in their corner that were encouraging them or cheering them on. We talked a lot about this idea that this sense of belonging gives us our psychological safety, where we're willing to take risks and we can try new things and not be necessarily good at them because we know we have that deep connection, that attunement with somebody who cares about us. So belonging is so important. And I feel right now, even when we look at the current landscape, you know, the pandemic within the pandemic is that sense of unbelonging that people feel like we're not keeping up with the people around us or there's this disconnection between what we're putting out there, for example, on social media or what we're trying to achieve externally. And it doesn't match how we feel on the inside. And that just creates this lack of congruency that leaves so many of us feeling disconnected in a way that means like, there's gotta be a different way to do this. You know, what's wrong with me? Whereas it's, it's not necessarily there's something wrong with us. It's, it's how we are conditioned and groomed to show up in the current landscape, in the current world is what we're seeing. So despite being more connected or having opportunities to be more connected than ever before, the reality is, is we're lonely. We are feeling really disconnected. And when we want to get to a place where we can practice that everyday resiliency, the first step in belonging really is that relationship repair with yourself. I want people to get back to a place where they trust themselves that they, you know what? Yeah, we've made bad mistakes and yeah, we don't always show up the way we want to, but at the core, we're doing the best we can with the tools that we have. And whether it's maladaptive behaviors or, you know, failed relationships or whatever it is that we're carrying with us, each and every one of us, we're doing the best that we can. So I think that sense of belonging actually has to start with ourselves. And when we get back to a place with ourselves where we realize, you know what, I'm the only one I'm ever going to get, you know, this is the only life I'm going to get. I need to find a way to coexist with these parts. I think is where we start that healing for belonging. That's so interesting because again, I'm, I'm just reflecting on where you started when you talked about whether or not, you know, as like a professor, you should share anything personal. I think what the, in doing that, what you were kind of demonstrating is that you can be a person who's had adversity, who's struggled and still belong Yes, with the, with, you know, with other professors. Mm-hmm. And I think if people are going to feel like they belong, they have to feel like, it's so hard to feel like you fit in if you see this group is perfect. All these people, they, none of them have struggled like I have. And, you know, they all wouldn't understand me. It's hard to belong. So again, it just speaks to, we need, I guess we need role models and we need examples of people who have shared their authentic self and not been shunned. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's a lonely, it's a lonely road to take at first, at first, because a lot of people we've been conditioned to put up this armor and conditioned to hold these, you know, versions of our ideal self that we share with the world. What I find so amazing though, in being authentic and saying, yeah, you know, just because I've had this experience, it doesn't preclude me from being a scholar. If anything, it just gives me a, a, a wider understanding of this, a deeper breadth and depth to my knowledge here. 
what's amazing is the people who come forward after those conversations, after those department meetings, or after those conferences who reach out Elizabeth and say, Hey, you know what, Robin? Um, yeah, I actually have, you know, this issue that I'm trying to navigate, or, you know, I'm really worried about my child who's going through, you know, learning challenges at school. And I think that there's this illusion that we maintain that everyone has everything figured out, or people think that there's one right way to do any of our professional practice. The reality is we're, we're flawed. We're humans. All of us are stick handling many different challenges. And when we do have those examples or people who, you know, in, in the case of this body of work where I said, no, I'm willing to, I'm willing to put myself out here. I'll talk about these things because I believe in the power of storytelling as a strategy of building community, you then will have other people who will come forward. And when you step into that place, uh, another colleague of mine, uh, a great colleague of mine, she's in the business world, but she talks about that. You then enter a different frequency with people where it's like, Oh, we're not, we're not doing small talk. We're not doing, you know, posturing. We're not trying to make everyone think we're perfect. You enter this frequency where we can be real and we can be authentic and flawed and wholehearted and still do good work and still be of service and still be able to find that, that integration between both of those dimensions of our, of our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches you know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. And I join you in that belief and actually think we can do better work when we do that because, you know, in, the, in your book, you, you reference Brene Brown and you, mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about her work. And of course, she found out that in being vulnerable and sharing our authentic self, people actually move closer, feel more connected and are more inclined to really open up and listen to you. Mm -hmm. um, and I hear you using a, a term she uses a lot, wholehearted. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think that, um, that there's something about being a resilient person that I think builds a wholehearted mm -hmm. nature in a person or yeah. And, and I think for me, um, I absolutely, obviously I celebrate Brene Brown's work. She's a, just an, an extraordinary scholar and she's done so much for these conversations about vulnerability that I appreciate that, you know, she started that conversation, 
when I'm thinking about wholehearted, I, I feel as though it's this, this really authentic alignment between our, uh, who we are, who we want to be and, you know, who we are becoming. So it's the idea that wholehearted, I think sometimes people misconceive this idea that we're supposed to have it all together, right? Like we're supposed to like, you know, be so comfortable in our own skin that, you know, feedback doesn't bother us. Like we're just like bulletproof, so to speak. Whereas when I'm thinking about wholehearted, it's that I know I'm operating from my value system. I know I'm making what matter most matter most that I'm embracing the discomfort, right? I'm embracing the fact that, you know, when I do hear negative feedback, it hurts. You know, I wish we would stop telling people like, oh, don't let it bother you versus saying like, yeah, no negative feedback. That doesn't feel good. Instead of being like, oh, I don't let that bother me. Right. Well, it's like, really? Cause then you feel as though that they have this super skill, this superhuman skill where it's like, wow, they don't worry. They don't do this. It's like, gosh, you know, that's, I don't think the reality for so many of us. So wholehearted, I think is that commitment of operating from your values, living within your values. And I think where we get so derailed in our culture in all different areas, whether it's with our family systems, professionally, even with our neighbors, is that we're actually spending so much time, Elizabeth, living outside of our values. And that's what causes this erosion of us feeling well and capable and resilient. Because when you're living in your competencies of your values, when you're feeling that, you you are able to make the good choices. Uh, And I think a lot of people, for whatever reason, we get pulled out of our values thinking that this is how we're supposed to do things. This is normative. This is what's expected of us versus finding that little bit of confidence. And I often let folks know that little bit of confidence, it could be just a flicker, but that confidence is that, you know what, I'm going to try and hold my space right here and do the best that I can from this place. And what's extraordinary I've witnessed is that that little seed of confidence, it starts to grow. And what we think about other people, that's still always going to be there, but it isn't as noisy. We actually start honoring and listening to our own intuition and our own beliefs that really helps us show up in our lives. And that to me is what that wholeheartedness is. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I think this might be a good place if you like to talk a little bit about the resiliency trajectory model, Mm. because you, you just said a whole, a whole lot in that last bit about um, becoming wholehearted and values and all that. And, And I think that there is a way that our culture and being in a capitalist society values selling products and values um, constant self-improvement, both psychological self-improvement, but also physical and, and acquisition of material items and all of that. And so I think that's one of the values that can conflict with personal values and pull us, pull us off track. Um, and also that I think we value tough people being tough you know, tough, strong, um, the opposite of vulnerable. And your trajectory model really talks about allowing some time and space for, for feeling. And as you, I think you said earlier, you, you have to feel your way through some things. And that ability to feel your way through can support a sense of self-worth and um, resiliency, right? You're absolutely right. I agree. I echo what you're saying there for sure. And how I, I, I chose to map out the resiliency trajectory model was often people are saying like, okay, well, you know, where am I in my recovery? Like where, what's too much, what's not enough, you know, what's how, how much sadness am I allowed to have? And, and, you know, I would, I would just, you know, sit with people who were just looking for some clarity and, what I always talk about is the fact that every experience is unique. Everyone's going to go through their own ebbs and flows. And, you know, it's, there is seasons in our lives. There's going to be seasons of grief. There'll be seasons of loss. Even when we think about belonging, that's a season of hellos with some goodbyes. We're going to have to be in this constant state of flux and, what I did though find when I was working with persons is they did need that clarity. So I wanted to produce or create or author 
a, a, a vision of where are we trying to go from here or where do we get to go from here? So by no means is it, is it time sensitive? It is absolutely the opposite. It's just like, this is this natural ebb and flow that I had witnessed in my work, what people were coming upon. And very much after a tragic event or a challenging season, there is this decline phase where all of a sudden we look around and, you know, I know people have said to me like, Robin, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't plan for this. This isn't what I ever anticipated. So we have that moment where our foundation is rocked, Elizabeth, where all of a sudden it's just like, well, no, I don't, I don't want to do this this way. I don't want to experience this hurt, this rejection, whether it be a loss of a job, loss of a marriage. And we notice the decline tends to be greater when it's something that impacts our identity. So whether it be us as a mother or us as a daughter or as a wife or as a, as a researcher, as a, a business person, when it, it, when it hits your identity, then we're kind of left with who am I now or what does this look like? And what's amazing that I would witness working with people going through some of the most challenging events in their lives is all of a sudden, without even knowing it, people were starting to adapt and it doesn't mean that they like it, but that very much was that second phase that I write about is this adapt. We start to figure it out. And in the book, I candidly share about, I had tragically lost my mother, who was my person. My mother was the, just the, the heart, the light in my life. And I lost her aggressively. And I intellectually in that moment was able to cope in that shock, Elizabeth, by saying, you know what? I'm done. And I actually use the word, like, there is no more benevolent Robin. Like I am so done. I'm going to be jaded and angry for the rest of my life. And then all of a sudden I had this moment where I thought, shoot, but the kids need to go out to school tomorrow and I have to make dinner and like, I got to do carpool. It's like, gosh, I can't have this breakdown just yet because I have to still fulfill my responsibilities as the mother which is interesting because in reflection, I realized I was adapting and I didn't like it. And I didn't want to have to live life without my mother and my children having their grandmother. I realized though, I had to keep figuring it out. And then that's something I then saw in other places when I was supporting people. So we have this decline, we start to adapt, whether we like it or not. And then there is this precious place that happens during our difficult seasons that I call the reclaim place where all of a sudden we start picking up those broken pieces. We start kind of getting a little bit familiar with what our life looks like. And then we make those decisions on where do we get to go from here? Where, what is our next right move, which then leads us into the rise phase where we realize that we're capable, we're strong. We now have evidence that we can go through some of the most challenging things and often to pause just for a moment where I get a wee bit frustrated about as I hear people say like, oh, you get stronger and more resilient going through bad things. It's like, no, going through bad things won't make you more resilient. Learning, reflecting, healing is what's going to make you more resilient. Otherwise, we're just going to become jaded and we're going to carry trauma with us if we don't do the work. So how we go through that, again, is how I see that trajectory of those four marked seasons as we move through. So how, what do you recommend for someone that's been through something hard and they're saying, okay, what's the right way to do the reflection? How, how am I supposed to learn from this? What, what's that look like? Yeah, it's a really great question. What I often talk people about is we, we have to go back to the basics. We actually have to go back to the absolute basics first and foremost, and make sure that we find a place where we can feel safe. We won't be able to reflect and learn and grow if we're still in these precarious places. So we need to figure out where is our home team? Where is it safe for me to start to do the work? We won't be able to do the work if that's not established. So going down to the basics to figure out, okay, where is that, where is that safety going to come from? Even in very tumultuous times, we still have to put the energy towards figuring out what does safe look like. And then when we get to that place, whether it be maybe with family or with support, uh, external support, whether it be a counselor or someone, uh, even your pastor, or your priest, like wherever you find that place of like, okay, this is where I can now talk about all of it. That's where we start from. And 
often what happens, we are in these places where we think that we have to, you know, for example, if we've just lost somebody, you know, we think that we, you know, we're only supposed to think good things about the person that's lost, right? Out of respect. But there's this thing called complicated grief where for some people it's not straightforward. So we need to find safe places where we can experience all of the, all of the emotions, not just the good ones, not just the ones that we think people will accept. We have to be willing to be real and raw with the fact that there are other things at play here. So I think that's the starting point. The second point, what I often let folks know is you don't have to do it all at once. So there could be days where you're like, you know what, today I'm not doing any of the work. I'm just going to go on autopilot and I'm just going to kind of get through the day because we need time to recover. We need time to just catch our breath and our life be more than just the tragedy. So we need some breaks, even in recovery. It's not a full-time job. We need to make sure we're giving that spaciousness into our day that we don't just become defined by the tragedy. And what I often let people know, and this is kind of that third kind of place where we start to explore is, is establishing a frame of reference. And what I mean by that is I recall going through some really difficult seasons of my life. I was so, you know, I was working through a lot of emotional health and mental health issues that I really didn't have a baseline of what, you know, so, you know, I don't really like using the word, but what normal looked like. So I actually would reach out to like a friend who was not currently navigating a difficult, you know, a difficult situation and say, you know, could I just kind of tag along today? I just need to see what, what your day looks like, because I had no frame of reference of what, what an average day looked like for somebody who wasn't experiencing trauma. So it's important that we establish frames of reference. And so I was very fortunate that I did have people who were like, uh, sure, you can tag along as a, as a witness to my life. Cause I didn't even know what normal looked like after some of the setbacks I've experienced in my life. So that's where I would start safety giving yourself permission to take breaks unapologetically. We don't have to live in the grief all the time, even though it's always there. We don't have to always be moving the needle and then establishing some new frames of reference, I think is how we start to recover. Yeah. Again, I'm kind of, um, I keep getting this sense in all of your stories about how important belonging is. Because mm -hmm. even with you know the grief you experience after losing your mom, the fact that, you belong to a family that has these three children. I mean, yes. that belonging, that sense of connection to others can get us to come back into the world again, instead of just isolating and, and getting lost mm -hmm. or belonging to a group of colleagues or friends that you can ask to tag along with them. And so I think that's, that's so important. And I think, um, I think that probably relates a little bit to perspective too, how you, yeah. which is, which is, I think it's the second pillar that you talk about um, and perspective. They're all obviously so related. So what belonging perspective, acceptance, hope, and humor. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder if you go back again and just say a little bit more about those because they are all so important because I, what you're suggesting is if you can get these things kind of in place in your life, they help you on a day-to-day -day basis, have a sense of an everyday type of resiliency. Yeah, absolutely. Elizabeth. And that's the, I think that's the key differentiator in my work. It's not only about the big catastrophic setbacks. It's the idea that in the in-between seasons, in the time when we're not going through a crisis or we're not feeling overly depleted, it's what we do in between that sets us up for success for when the big stuff does get us. And we know it will, that's inevitable. We have lives, so they're gonna get complicated, but it's the in-between. And so yes, nurturing those relationships with ourselves and other is that belonging perspective. Again, seeing the world, but also feeling the world, right? Working from our values, knowing what matters most to us, making it matter most. The third pillar being acceptance. And this idea isn't that we have to get over anything or like everything. And even in the book, I talk about, you know, not every situation have a, a silver lining. And it gets, I get frustrated when I hear people say like, oh, there's got to be a purpose. There's got to be a bigger meaning behind it. It's like, 
or sometimes things just suck, right? Some things are just unjust, unfair, and are terrible. And what the acceptance dimension looks like is deciphering your controllables, figuring out what are those things you can't change, and then making that decision to coexist with it, knowing that, okay, this is part of my story. I'm going to now carry it with me. So I can share with you as an adult with ADHD, recognizing that, you know what, this is the way that I see the world. And instead of fighting it, recognizing I need to put systems in place that make it so that way I can still be successful, despite the fact that I do see the world differently. And hope, hope to me is this beautiful thread that ties all this together, living in hope with others. We need to cultivate and foster being hope-filled. And there's so much negativity and noise out there. But the real idea about leaning into those moments of hope, they're going to help us get through. And I can share with you one of the kind of um, anecdotal pieces I've observed is even when people go through a terrible loss or grief, rejection, whatever the setback is, In that moment, if you still have just that little spark of hope that, you know what, I trust that I don't understand this. I don't like it, but you know what, I'll figure it out. What we'll make do those people are the ones that, that are able to make it through. It's the people whose hope goes out and it just, where they think like, no, this is the world is not a safe place. Those are the people that I think get stuck, unfortunately. And the last, and I believe this is so important to all of our lives is we need, we need humor. And I refer to it as humor, but it represents play and joy and merriment. It's all of those things that give us a chance to lay down our worries, lay down all the heaviness of life and just be at peace. And, you know, our body is set up for that. You know, for example, when we laugh, our body releases a natural tranquilizer. So for that moment, our pain receptors are blocked So we can just find a way for get some release and some reprieve. And when I work with persons and we really pay attention to cultivating and fostering those five areas, when the big stuff comes along and it wallops us, we're able to recover. We're able to find our way through it because we have the right systems, skills, and tools in place. I think one of the reasons why I liked that approach is because of my I'm a certified mindfulness meditation teacher, and that's the way we teach. That's the way you teach um, a meditation practice too, is you're sitting there. And even if you're not feeling successful at trying to settle and be present, but you're trying to practice that capacity to, even if you're distracted or your stomach hurts or something is, you know, keeps coming into your mind, you can still over and over again, remind yourself that your intention is to just stay seated and stay calm and just go back to the breath. And by doing that, you know, we say it's like lifting weights. You just, you just get stronger and stronger. And I love that approach that when you're, you know, you're looking at these aspects of daily life and trying to build this up, it strengthens you for those really challenging moments. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I often talk about, I, I love what you just said about that meditation. I, I talk, um, I talk about how the fact is like, we want to establish some baselines. So the, the more readily that you can recall that feeling of stillness or that feeling of present, when you go off the mat or you go into the world, you know what you're looking for. Like, you know, okay, that's the feeling that I want to invoke. That's the, that's the place where I want to get my mind to. And when we have that top of mind or more familiar, or it's easier to access, we can get there quicker and then reap the benefits of it. And so that's the same principle about what we're thinking about with resiliency. When we condition ourselves to, you know, be able to trust, we are able to find those little pockets of joy and merriment. We're able to maintain perspective and recognize that there's going to be things outside of our control, but we can coexist with those when we are called to challenging times, it's readily available for us to, to reach out, even though it's going to be hard, we're still going to be able to know where to look. 
And if you don't spend time, for example, with the meditation practice and somebody says, you know, you need to you know, try to calm down, you don't even know what that looks like. So we want to be able to visualize and imagine what it is that we want to invoke because our, our, we're, we're amazing, adaptable creatures, right? We, we can find those patterns and we can replicate it on demand when needed. So now I want to go back to Joseph again. Yes. <laughs> and um, and see if you, there is anything you want to share about that. Because again, what you just said now makes me think, well, okay, what about these people? This, you know, some 30-year-old man driving home, sees, like, yikes, yikes. I mean, you know, he, he keeps his wits about him. He gets a log and a chain out of his truck and he decides he's going to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm... I mean, I don't know if you know much about him, but even just to say like, cause I think that's an example of, he, that's an example of he's obviously felt like he was a resilient person capable of taking the okay. risk for somebody he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's amazing because, um, and again, this is not necessarily for Joseph. Um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for Joseph. I can't speak for Joseph, but what we know from, from psychology is that when you are the only solution, we know that people are able to find capacity or efficacy or ability to do things, to be able to help and show up for another person in distress when you are the only person. So there's a lot of research that actually talks about that. We, even though we think like, I often wonder is like, would I have been able to do that? You know, would, would I be able to respond in such a way? I take comfort in knowing that we are well-equipped our survival instinct and that of preserving life in others is such a strong force, Elizabeth, that if you are the only solution, you're going to be able to react and respond. Now, it's fascinating what the research talks about, though, is if you're if there's more than two or three people there, it actually shows that nobody responds. And we have what we call this bystander effect because we expect the other person to respond. We'd be like, oh, Elizabeth, you're more qualified. You go do that. And then we actually don't actually act. So the fact that Joseph was alone, I think is probably one of the, again, from a psychological perspective, one of the reasons why he was able to act. And what we also see in the research, sometimes when it's a pair, right? We also see that, you know, two people are able to work together to be able to respond. But when there's larger numbers, uh, we tend to get that bystander effect and people don't do anything. So I often encourage people that, we can fight against that tendency. If you're in a situation and you notice there's lots of people around and nobody is acting, just do the best that you can, right? You, you to be able to respond, trust that you can, you'll figure it out. You might not do it perfectly, or you might not know how to do it, but just make that action that you're going to try. And when people see people trying it brings people out of that bystander trap where they're like, oh, okay, let's, let's try to help this person here. And I think right now, especially with so much unrest in our communities, that we have to make sure that we're taking those leadership roles, even though it might be uncomfortable and we're concerned, we need that collective humanity to make sure that we're doing our best to preserve life. And I think that's another important um, message in this book is that we all can be resilient. You know, you talk about, it's not like some people are resilient and I'm just not a resilient person. That like what you just said, we're all equipped to rise to lots of challenges, even if we doubt ourselves that, you know, and that's a really positive message to get. It's not like, you know, a couple of lucky people, you know, or this person just easily athletic and I'm just not athletic. It's like, no, we actually all can be, are equipped. Absolutely. And I often tell persons, you know, we, we pick up these stories, right? We pick up these stories and these labels about ourselves, like things like I'm not very resilient, or I'm really emotional, or I'm not good at handling stress, or the reality is we need to trust our biology. 
we are extremely well equipped and we're adaptable and we do figure things out and we might not always make the the right choice but at least as we if we stay in that place of action it gives us the opportunity that we can experience success so even when folks tell me like oh i'm not i'm not very resilient i say well trust your biology because your biology will make sure that you survive that's what that's what we do we are we're a, a collection of, 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 of community that will find a way to make it through even the most difficult and dark seasons of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, most people will say, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't, you know, I, you know, or, or even like, I, I can't take this. I can't handle anymore or whatever. And then they're still here, mm-hmm. you know, they're yeah. still here later. So yeah. it's, I think you said it, it's the stories we have, we start telling ourselves things, but you know, we really can question that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we've, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I, I want to ask another question that just came to me as I, I think I can, there's a photo behind you, probably, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's your children or family or whatever, but it occurred to me because you, you say in the book, you know, that your children are, um, I think, teenagers or mm-hmm. around that age. Yes. I, I'm just wondering what what they think of you sharing your personal story and and just what they think about, you know, their mom writing a book and just kind of what that's been like. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. So yeah, we have three. So we have Hunter who's 17, Ava who's 15 and Jax who is 13 and they are, um, they are terrific humans and uh, they're very proud of their mom. Uh, We, we have, We've navigated a lot together and uh, they are, uh, they're, they're active participants in all of this. They are, they're proud of their mom. Uh, I've always been real uh, with them. I remember talking to children when they were toddlers and telling them, I will never be a perfect mom for you, but I promise I'll be present. Like I'll be here. I'll, I'll witness all of your lives. As long as I am here, I will be your witness, but I cannot be perfect. So we're going to, we're going to go through this together. And, uh, they are, they're definitely in my corner. And even especially, um, each of the stories that I did include in the book that did include the children. Um, I did ensure that I had their consent and there were some stories that they said, no, I, I want to keep that just between us. And I honored that. And then the other ones are like, Oh, fine, go ahead, mom. Uh, so I wanted them to know that they were respected and that their privacy was extremely important to me within this context. Um, and it's interesting. Often some people say to me like, Oh, but you know, you disclose some pretty dark things about your childhood. Like was, you know, what, what, and your kids are teenagers. Like, that seems a little bit of a slippery slope. I often let folks know, you know, we don't, um, you know, talking about suicide doesn't make people suicidal. Talking about mental health does not exacerbate mental health. Normalizing the fact that the lived experience is complicated is what teenagers need to hear right now. And I had very open conversations with the children about my struggles and what I perceived as why I got derailed and we're doing our best to learn from some of mom's mistakes. And we often joke in this house about the fact we don't want to waste a mistake. And I let them know I have made plenty and uh, we're going to learn from these mistakes. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll ensure that they obviously are going to make their own mistakes and their own experiences, but that they know that come what may, we're going to figure it out together as a family. So um, I'm very proud of them. And I appreciate that they're pretty proud of mom too. And I'm glad they consented because there's some nice stories in the, mm-hmm. in the book that you share. And yeah. I, I want to just want to tell you, I think it was so cute too. I think in your acknowledgements, <laughs> you, you decide to tell the children exactly how many times each of their names appears in the book. And you're like, okay, kids, don't worry. You know, your name comes up 40 times, 44 times, whatever. I thought that was just so cute. Cause I, you know, as a mother, I, you know, yeah. I know like, you know, my own, three kids would be counting. Okay. How many times did you? Oh, hundred percent. Absolutely. And you know, I, I was mindful that our wee one Jax, the little guy, he got, uh, I think a couple extra mentions and, uh, you know, given that he's been third player the whole game, I think it was fair that Jax got a, he got his little moment there, but yeah, we, we had a good chuckle about the, the fact that we, as a parent, you love them all uniquely and completely and uh, trying my best to, to do that justly for them. 
Yes. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I, I do love that you model that you can tell that you bring that parenting approach. You even talk at one point when you're talking about your youngest and you say, okay, this poor kid, you know, he's the youngest, he doesn't have the baby book order, but I've got the flash drive. I've got the, yeah. you know, the, yes. the pictures are on there somewhere. I, I yes. think that was the same thing for me too. My older two had the, had a whole lot more. And then my youngest is like, oh gosh, they're all digital. I don't know. They're, they're there somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, they, uh, we, we have a, we have a good go. And, you know, I think when we honor each person in our household as, as being contributors, right. That we're on the same team, we're on the home team and we celebrate each other's wins and, and their experiences. And, and we're here for one another. And I can share with you, you know, in, you know, I'm mindful of our time. So I'll wrap up briefly, but the one thing that I'm so proud of as a mom is the siblinghood that our three children have. They are good to one another. And I am so proud of the children for being in each other's corners. And I often talk to them about the fact that siblinghood is often the longest season that we will have with family and how special it is. And, you know, just coming out in Ontario, we're just coming out of 16 months of lockdown and, and seeing how they, they were there for one another. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, often parents ask me, you know, how do I really make sure my children are resilient? It's like, you know, if we can really cultivate and foster siblinghood, it's going to give them a safe place, even when we're no longer here. And, uh, you know, that's my, my hope for other, for other family systems, um, that we can find, you know, there's, there's so much, um, almost like, uh, there's so much competition that sometimes happens between siblings, but if we help them realize that they could be your greatest allies in this big world, um, it's something that I think could make a big difference. I love that you said that. And I'm going to give a shout out to my siblings. I have six oh, siblings. That's awesome. Because it's because I did experience a lot of sort of feeling other and questioning my belonging growing up. And I knew that I they were always there, even when there was rivalry or they weren't always being nice. I just always said, so, you know, my parents did a good job too. My mom in particular, building that, that, you know, that sense of belonging to each other, that we're on the same team, even if we don't always agree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that to me, that siblinghood is, uh, that's something I'm, I'm very appreciative for as a mom, it gives me peace because I know they have each other. Well, that could be another book, how you do that, because (laughs) I work, I work a lot with parents and it's a challenge. How do you do that? How do you foster that? And, you know, I, I think, you, you can probably tell I'm very biased about, I think a big component of resiliency is, is the relate relationships, the relationships yes. we have and all of that. So I think that's really important. Um, but while I'm talking about that could be another book, I just want to give you a chance to say if there's anything in particular that you're working on these days or, um, and also to mention maybe how people can get the book. I know it's available on Amazon. Awesome, Phil. Thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah, the uh, the the book is uh, it's it's made this way kind of a, a across Canada. We've had some really great reception, which I appreciate so so very much. And now it's working its way down south. So it's uh, it's now working its way through the United States. That's what we're actively working on right now, um, bringing that 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 body of work to uh, our neighbors in the south. And yes, it's available um, through um, any of the regular channels and all of the updates about our material. All of that is on my website. So please feel free to reach out. We're always building our community where we have lots of free resources on our website under open resources. Um, Part of where I put my research is in what we call open educational resources. So it's open source, which means you're welcome to download and share it and pass it along. So I look forward to our paths crossing again. And I do thank you, Elizabeth, for this gift of time for us to be able to have these conversations. So thank you for the warm welcome. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.